This is Reformers, the gritty details behind the world's greatest bootstrap success stories. For the inaugural podcast, I'm excited to have Sam McBride, the former chief operating officer at RX Bar. You all know the RX Bar story by now. The protein bar company bootstrapped its way to success, achieving a $600 million exit to Kellogg's. However, what you don't know are the key operating tactics and decisions made along the way that enabled this success, all without raising any outside capital. In this conversation, we'll get into the trenches to uncover critical insights that you can translate into your own business. Without further ado, please welcome Sam McBride. So what I figured we'd do is start off with how you got to the company, what your background was, and sort of set the context for the conversation. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so out of school, I went into finance and did a traditional two-year analyst program in the healthcare space. Um, and I decided I wanted to be an operator. Uh, long-term, I always thought that I'd become an investor, but um, I didn't feel I had much of an edge. And so when I took a step back and thought about what types of edges you could have as an investor, I always looked up to companies that were investors that really thought like operators. So I decided to go after an operating edge and the guys who had been mentors for me to that point were all operators. And um, one of them who had a finance background as well, he had found a home security business to purchase. And the funding for the purchase was from a guy who built a windows siding and doors business in the Midwest. <laughs> and so really, you know, very old school business that was profitable the whole time, um, didn't require much, if any, outside funding. It was very, um, very old school in their approach to building businesses. <clears throat> And so my first operating experience was building a company called LiveWatch Home Security. And it was in a small town in St. Mary's, Kansas, which is west of Topeka. Um, and through that experience, I learned a ton about how you build a business in a sustainable way. Um, and so that business, we were really focused on profit and unit economics and being really scrappy around the edges. Um, and so a lot of the learnings from that business translated to our X bar, both from a business standpoint, but also when it comes to a really lean operating mentality. Um, and then the other operating experience I had before our X bar was uh, building a, a, a sort of new take on facilities services, particularly in concrete and asphalt and concrete and asphalt, just like windows, siding and doors, and just like home security are pretty old school, somewhat blue collar business where you're not going to get a ton of venture funding. So you really have to build the business in a very sustainable way. And uh, that also influenced a lot of the way that we approached our X bar. It's interesting to think how much a prior experience can shape your next experience. For instance, in Silicon Valley, most people who are joining new companies or starting companies are coming from a business that was venture-backed and therefore was used to growing extremely quickly and allocating resources differently. Whereas in your case, your prior experiences 
kind of led you to the opposite. You had to be much more conservative in your approach and, and you were much more constrained. And it would be, you know, it would be interesting to think through how that might have been different had you come from a venture-backed business and not had those constraints. We always talked about at RX Bar constraints being a net positive. And the home security business, we couldn't, we couldn't access traditional venture funding because our business model was different than most home security businesses. We had a sort of no contract approach, whereas ADT, you know, you're signing a three or five year contract. And so the underwriting methodology for this, for the industry, for home security was one where they relied on three to five year contracts. And our constraint that we created for ourselves was no contract, which was appealing to the consumer, but was a problem from a financing standpoint. So that constraint forced really lean operating because we just couldn't access those traditional sources of capital. Um, and our X bar was similar in that in the early days, there wasn't a lot of appetite for, a, for what you know, investors would respond to as a, another protein bar company, you know, what was really our, our reason for existing and those constraints forced behaviors operationally that were really, really productive for the business long-term, even if they felt like in the moment we had less ammunition than some of our competitors. I love the idea of constraints as a competitive advantage. I actually wrote about this topic a few uh, months ago in regard to consumer brands. A lot of consumer brands raise money, uh, allocate excessively, and think they can just short-circuit the brand-building process, when in reality, it just takes a lot of time. And if you have constraints in the form of you know, less access to capital or other uh, resources, you can actually operate much more deliberately and build a better brand longer term. Anyway, to kick off the RxBar story, when did you join... What was your initial role and what was the scale of the business at the time? Yeah, so I joined the business in 2014 and the business, we finished 2014 at a, a little over 2 million in sales. Um, and the sales were nearly 100% direct to CrossFit businesses and then some direct to consumer at that point. Um, but it was about a $2 million business and it was all direct either to consumer or to small businesses. Got it. And, and we had spoken about this a little bit before, and I heard you talking about this on, on another uh, interview, but you have this concept around market sizing and basically marketing and selling to a niche that seemed like it was very um, you know, informative and important early on in the company's life cycle. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that idea and how it informed uh, our Bar's go-to-market, especially yeah. as it pertains to CrossFit? Yeah, so the business was formed in the CrossFit channel, and the name RxBar is, is named after the CrossFit channel. So in CrossFit, if you do a workout as it's prescribed, that's considered a big accomplishment in that community. And so the bar was named after that, that moniker in CrossFit, Rx. So it gives you a sense of, of how deeply ingrained we were in the CrossFit community in the early days. And <clears throat> so we were naturally niche focused because we were born in a niche. Um, and the product benefits, the simplest of ingredients, 
the fact that if you were a paleo eater or you were doing a whole 30, you could still eat most of our bars. Those all lent themselves to a niche audience. And what we did differently than most was we stayed in the niche much longer than most people would have. Um, we had an appetite and a patience for the niche that paid off in the long run. And a part of it, going back to the constraints, was that we really had no money. You know, we had four or five employees and we were living hand to mouth. Anything that we sold went back to purchasing raw materials. So the budget that we had for traditional sales and marketing was was very, very limited. And so we had to think what were the what was the lowest hanging fruit? Where could we acquire customers at the lowest possible cost? And in most cases, a cost of zero or maybe product cost. And <clears throat> because the product hit home for paleo eaters, whole 30 people and folks in the CrossFit space, we, we didn't have to do much selling to those people because the product solves such a clear problem for them. And so we focused all of our time on penetrating that niche. And even though we may have grown a little slower in the early days because of that focus, it, it built a very strong foundation for the business. And it helped us understand our business within a community that was very forgiving. So any mistakes we made, the CrossFit community, the paleo community, the Whole30 community, they would forgive us early on because we were solving such a clear problem for them and because we were so invested in the community. You know, we were at all the events. We were friends with all of the influencers in the space. Um, and we were just we had such a deep connection with the community that we were given a lot of room for error, which was really important in those early days. And you were responsible for all selling as VP of sales, I assume the first VP of sales at the company? Yeah, so <clears throat> it, when I joined, like I mentioned, there were five of us, um, Peter and Jared who founded the business, Jesse Stewart, who is also a friend of ours from grade school. So Peter, Jared, myself, and Jesse, we all grew up together, have known each other uh, since grade school and and then a, a fifth guy named Jeff and so I was in charge of selling and building distribution but at that stage everybody's in sales you know I mean the, the only point of the business at, at that stage is to make protein bars and sell protein bars so it was a super simple business at that scale so um, everybody was focused on selling and the ways that we sold were building relationships within the community, opening up new points of distribution, which for us meant CrossFit boxes <clears throat> and then attending events for these communities, whether that was, you know, a paleo event, uh, a CrossFit competition, or even just going to a CrossFit gym and sampling the product. So so much of the work that we were all doing at that point was directly tied to either making the product or selling the product. So um, the early days when I joined 
the first thing to do because the product market fit was was about as good as it gets and the the engagement from those communities was really strong and really positive <clears throat> so that we didn't have to reinvent the wheel when it came to the product or the positioning or the market or anything like that all of that foundation was really strong so the first thing that i did was implemented systems that would allow us to scale that foundation so the first thing was implementing a crm and we used salesforce and then customizing it in a way that we captured the relevant customer data to make our customers lives easier because at this point we weren't expanding the market we weren't selling them new products or anything like that all we wanted to do was make it easier for them to purchase <clears throat> and make it more seamless both for the crossfit boxes and for the direct-to-consumer so the first thing we did was we implemented Salesforce, <clears throat> customized it for our business. And then the second step shortly thereafter was to implement some automation and communication tools. So lead capture on the website and automated email marketing that would make our customers' lives easier. And, and then other, other things that made it easier for them like you know, enabling our system to save their credit card so that when they came back, they didn't have to re-enter that data, making sure the login process was smooth and seamless and that they could do it from their phones as well as their computers. And then even giving them alternate uh, conversion paths. So for the longest time, we had CrossFit boxes that would text us and just say, hey, you know, I want 10 more boxes of chocolate sea salt and blueberry and then we'd process the order for them. So the whole business was designed around making that niche community's engagement with our brand as simple and seamless as possible. And in addition to the sort of direct selling you were doing, were there any unique growth hacks you guys did? I had heard um, you were doing something with micro-influencers early on, which yeah. maybe has become more common. Uh, I heard this story about you calling the high V nutritionist, which I thought was really interesting as a way to bypass the middlemen. Um, yeah. So in the, in the earliest days, we, we focused on the CrossFit paleo and whole 30 influencers. And what we realized was because we did everything in house, like I mentioned, we didn't have any budget to pay anyone to do anything for us. So anything we did, was a stack ranked priority um, that we could handle ourselves for little or no cost. Most The most common cost was either our time or product cost because we were giving away product for free. And so what we would do is um, the Instagram account was run from my phone. And so I would reach out to micro influencers and just shoot them a direct message on Instagram and say, hey, um, we have a product that, that I think you'll really like. If you'll just reply with your address, we'll send you some. And there's no strings attached. You don't have to post on our behalf. You don't have to like it. Um, if you don't like it, you can post about it. It's completely up to you. And what we were doing was we were building a community in a really organic way. And so it cost us no money other than the shipping costs and the product cost. And what 
what it did over time was it built this really strong community of influencers and evangelists for the brand. And we realized in our space, <clears throat> because CrossFit was so important as an organization to us, the most influential people in CrossFit, <clears throat> you know, it's not Kim Kardashian or some massive influencer like that. It's actually the best athlete at your local gym or it's the coach or the owner in your local CrossFit box. And if they're eating our X bars and they're wearing our t-shirts or using our gear, the other athletes in the gym who aspire to be as good of an athlete as, as the coach or the owner or just the best athlete, <clears throat> they'll see that as a signal that our X bars are a part of this person's routine. And so, we found ways to engage with folks at all different scales. And one of the things that we did in the early days was we realized that a lot of the coaches, to be a coach, you have to get certified. And there were two levels of certification at the time. And different CrossFit gyms would host different certification classes that usually lasted two days and I think they ran like eight or 12 throughout the year at the time. And we would just find out where they were being hosted. And they were always being hosted at some CrossFit box. And we'd call them up a week prior and just say, hey, we love that you're helping build this community. We're a, we're a member of the community as well. We'd love to send you guys a bunch of snacks for the coaches who are coming in for their trainings. And so we would just for free send them a few boxes, uh, a few cases of our X bars. And there was no there was no quid pro quo. We didn't ask them for anything in return. We were just doing it to be a good member of the community. And it built really strong bonds within CrossFit. It would turn into some of those boxes would start retailing our product. We were getting it into the hands of the best athletes. So it had this nice halo effect for the business. But I actually think the the key to it was the fact that we were doing it for the right reasons and we weren't asking for anything in return. Yeah, it's a lot different than how micro-influencers and, and influencing is done today. I think it's the polar opposite, actually. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so as you're scaling, you're getting into more boxes, you're getting into um, you know some some retailers – how um, how did you think about building the team? At what point, you know, you said you're five people at this point in time, which is crazy. <clears throat> at what point do you start bringing people on? Who are the first key hires? Uh, and and when did you know to bring them on? When was the right moment? Yeah. Um, so we always thought about it from a ROI standpoint. And so one of the first people we hired was a woman named Kim Galovich, who I had worked with. Um, at the concrete and asphalt business. And Kim is a digital marketer with a, with a heavy emphasis on email. And I knew from our home security business that email marketing done right, and it's most often done wrong, but done right, it, it should be the highest ROI marketing channel because if you're sending an email to someone, you've already acquired them as a customer. So you've already sunk an acquisition cost. And now you're just trying to re-engage. And each email costs basically nothing or a fraction of a, of a penny. Um, 
So email marketing, if you even have a decent program, should deliver an extremely strong ROI. So Kim was early in her career and was excited to join a high growth business. So she was willing to take a cut when it came to salary, which was important to us. And we did the math and said, we have, you know, I don't remember how many customers and boxes we had at that point, but we figured, you know, if she can consistently re-engage some percentage of them within a pretty significant margin for error, she's a positive ROI hire. Um, <clears throat> so she was the first person we hired because her skill set, email marketing, leveraged the money that we had already invested in building our database of customers and CrossFit boxes. And then once she came on and it worked as we expected, um, the next thing we thought about was, okay, if we've put in place an email marketer who makes our who makes our customer acquisition costs lower over time because she's consistently re-engaging those customers and selling more product to them. Now we can invest a little more money in the top of the funnel in lead generation and closing new accounts. And so the next people that we hired um, were inside salespeople. And inside salespeople are still extremely uncommon in the food and beverage space, <clears throat> but the home security business that we built was built exclusively on inside salespeople. And so just like email marketing, inside sales is one of the most cost efficient ways to acquire customers. <clears throat> if you know how to manage an inside sales team and build an inside sales process that's effective. So we had actually one of our team members, actually two of them, Jeff and Jesse, who were two of the five in the early days, pioneer this, this new path of customer acquisition. And the first thing that we did actually is probably in the first couple of weeks that I, that I was there, we got a list of 20 CrossFit boxes. <clears throat> we ordered lunch. I think we ordered Jimmy John's and we all sat around the conference room and dialed through those 20 names. And so we were looking at really simple metrics. So if we had 20 accounts and we were making phone calls at the time, the question was how many would answer the phone, how many were interested and by interested, they were interested enough to receive our samples because we would send them a variety pack at the time so they could try the product. And then of those who received the samples, how many converted into a sale? And then how many would convert into a repeat? And the repeat would obviously happen, you know, months later or at least weeks later. So that was sort of a delayed metric. But those were the simple metrics we were looking at. And out of those 20, I think if I'm remembering correctly, you know, three or four turned into sales. So call it 15 or 20% out of an out of a random group <laughs> of 20 would turn into a sale. And so then we took that basic funnel, which we knew was probably wrong, but directionally close enough for us to take some assumptions. And Jeff and Jesse started 
dialing through thousands of CrossFit gyms. And when it was pretty clear that we, we had a handle on the funnel, we knew that if we had a thousand CrossFit gyms, how many would turn into sales. Um, then we started actually hiring other inside salespeople. So the next two hires that we made were inside salespeople. And so we had four people dialing CrossFit gyms mostly um, to create new points of distribution. And as we went through that process, the same way we thought about email marketing, creating efficiencies for the existing database, we started to think about what are the other parts of this process <clears throat> that could become more efficient? And two major breakthroughs that we had when it came to the inside sales team. One was that phone calls was actually a super inefficient path to connecting with the decision maker at CrossFit gyms. And I remember Jesse realized this because Jesse was into CrossFit and she was making a lot of these early phone calls and she said, you know, I'm realizing the, the, the coaches or the owners, and sometimes that's the same person, they're coaching all day. And so the last thing they want to do is take a phone call at two in the afternoon when they're about to start a class, let alone break out their credit card and pay for an order and all this stuff. So we need to make this easier. We need to think about their life and their process and build our sales process into their process. And so what we realized with the email marketing was many of the opens and the click-throughs and the responses were happening late at night or super early in the morning because those coaches were catching up on email at home after all the classes were over or in the morning before they all began. And so we shifted the inside sales process away from the phone and more towards a text message, email message, sometimes Facebook message process, because we knew that fit their schedules better. So that was one huge breakthrough that expanded the top of the funnel for us. We had far more people responding and engaging with our outreach. And then the big expansion of the middle of the funnel was because sometimes we'd get people, yeah, sure, like I'll check them out and we'd send them a variety pack of like six or 12 bars. And it was because we were being frugal with our main marketing budget, which was free product. <clears throat> but what we realized was if we sent them full boxes and instead of sending them 12 bars, if we sent them a full case, which was six boxes of product, um, which is 72 bars. So we 5X'd the product cost our conversion rate jumped so significantly that it made the trade-off and upfront cost worth it. And so we changed our sales process from saying, hey, send us your address and we'll send you some samples to, hey, send us your address. We'll send you six boxes of bars that you can go ahead and sell. These are just free boxes for you to go sell. And if they sell, call us and we'll set you up with an account and then you can start purchasing. And it opened up the funnel so dramatically and it made all of those inside sales people far more efficient. It's almost like an organic MLM, uh, not, you know, in, in a good way. It's you have all of these champions out there selling for you on the front lines and not really even paying them for it. 
it's yeah, pretty, it's pretty amazing. And you know, the thing that we didn't appreciate because we were so focused on growth and you're absolutely right. It is like a, a multi-level marketing setup where you have all of these ambassadors out there doing some of the marketing for you because word of mouth marketing is the holy grail, right? I mean, you think about the products that you try and that you trust and that you'll spend money on. So many of them come from some type of referral, word of mouth, um, someone you trust says that, you, that, that they like it. And so it did drive a lot of growth. The thing that we undervalued that we only experienced later was that it actually creates a big moat around a distribution channel and it creates brand um, resilience that, that we didn't really know we were going to need. So I'll give you a specific example. So we had spent years building this loyal following <clears throat> and we were doing it organically and for all the right reasons. You know, it wasn't like we planned this. It was just this is the community we were involved with and we were always just trying to do right by that community. And in 2017, when we were a much bigger business, um, this food influencer called the Food Babe, she came after us <clears throat> and made accusations that were untrue. And we knew they were untrue. And the only way that she could have made these accusations was if she had if she was a part of our supply chain, which she obviously wasn't. So they were completely baseless accusations, but she has a big following and she has a history of calling out brands. And so it, it wasn't insignificant when she came after us. And I'll never forget it. The day it happened, we were all kind of looking at each other like, wow, you know, this is, this is a real thing that we need to think carefully about how to respond to, because you don't want to start a back and forth fight with somebody online and it just, it sort of feeds her what she's trying to do if you over-engage. So we sat down in the conference room, we're thinking through like, okay, how do we respond to this? You know, cause they're baseless, but we also don't want to encourage her. And by the time we came out of the meeting, our community online that, that they weren't paid for us, they weren't paid by us. They were just loyal to the brand because we had built such a strong relationship they defended us online without any prompting from us. And so we almost had to do nothing in this, which would, which could have been a potential PR nightmare. We had, we had almost nothing to do because the community defended us on our behalf. It was amazing. Unbelievable. I actually don't know many brands that that would happen for. I'm trying to think of a comp, but I, I, I can't. Um, and just to, to shift back to the idea of team building and, and hiring great people, because I do think it's important. Uh, you have uh, spoken about the importance of self-awareness in a candidate before. And I actually thought it was really interesting when I heard you speaking about that in another interview. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and why it's so important in such a fast growing company? Yeah. So um, it was through trial and error that we, uncovered some of the things that we thought were essential to an employee at RX bar, especially during the high growth phase. And one of those is self-awareness and the process for us discovering that was, you know, it's, it's incredibly rewarding to build a business 
And especially when you have success like we had, there's a lot of accolades and attention and all that stuff that come from it. But the thing that I think most people don't understand is it's also really hard. And it's not just hard in the sense that you have to, you know, work long hours and, and make tough calls and stuff like that. But one of the hardest things is um, you're just so exposed. You know, there's nobody, there's no backup. It's not like at a big company where you get sick or you go on vacation or you screw something up. And there's a bunch of lines of defense to make sure that that doesn't dramatically impact the business. In a small growing business, every decision you make is consequential and you are the one making the decision. So there's no, you know, there's no, um, there's nowhere to hide. And so we realize that it's a really taxing process personally and emotionally because you're just constantly, um, making decisions that are, that are consequential and that, and that you're responsible for. And as you grow, those decisions change. And when we were hiring people, we realized that the business was growing so fast. We went from two and a half million in 2014 to 6 million in 2015 to 30 million in 2016 to 125 in 2017 to over 128. So we were, the business was literally changing almost quarterly and the organizational structure would have to change because <clears throat> we went from having four people to 12 to 30 to 125. And so we had to keep building new infrastructure. And so we used to always talk about it like, one year at RX bar is probably worth five at any other company. And we started to see that most people are not naturally designed to handle that level of change at that pace. And so someone would get hired into a role <clears throat> and then sometimes before their job would even start. So let's say there was a month between them accepting an offer and starting the org structure might change and their responsibilities might change and the expectations might change. And even if it didn't change before they started, it would certainly change within their first six months. And <clears throat> we just saw how taxing it could be on people. Um, and we wanted to find a way to hire that gave people the best chance of succeeding in such a tough environment. And the thing we realized about self-awareness was if you understood your limitations or you understood at least where you were and you hopefully have the belief that you can grow and expand in your role, but you at least know like, okay, this is where I'm at right now. This is what I know. This is what I'm good at. And then here are my limitations. When those changes would happen, <clears throat> you were best equipped to handle them because you would say, Hey, you'd raise your hand and say, Hey, I need extra resources or, you know, I need some training or, you know, I don't really know how to do this. Or in some cases you would say, Hey, I can't do this new role. I love the company. I want to stay here and I want to contribute, but I just can't deliver on the expectations of this new, this new world. And so we would really preach and hire around self-awareness and it got, we got so good at it that 
on several occasions, we had people <clears throat> who would raise their hand. This guy on our team named Steve raised his hand one day and just said, hey, there's just too much on my plate. You know, we need to split my job in half and hire somebody to do the half that I can't do. And it's so powerful because now you're all working towards the same goal and you're not creating fiefdoms or protecting territory. You get everybody working in the same way. And I would say it was one of the most impactful parts about our culture was that we created a real safe space for self-awareness and for raising your hand if you were out over your skis. Yeah, I think that's, I've seen it so many times in early stage companies where they don't do that. They actually, in a lot of cases, take the opposite approach. They hire someone too senior for a role. They hire a manager for an individual contributor role. And it's people who actually have no self-awareness and are way out of position and it ends up ending badly for the company and for the candidate. So yeah. I just thought it was a really unique perspective. Yeah. And one of the, one of the strange things about building a business from the ground up is that it's the inverse of working for an established business from a personal standpoint. So if you work for an established business, let's say you go work for McDonald's as you expand, as you get promoted and go up the ladder within McDonald's, you oversee more of the business. Whereas if you're an early employee in a high growth business, as you hire more people, responsibilities actually get taken away from you. And so psychologically, it's the opposite of what you envision as a professional. And so self-awareness and we, we really drove hard on humility. Um, those you have to be super plugged into those because when someone comes to you and says, Hey, the business is doing awesome. You're doing awesome. And we're hiring someone to take half your responsibility. The natural response for people, especially those who we hired from bigger businesses is to protect against that because that's what they've been trained to do. And so we had to build in systems to help people get comfortable with the fact that it was actually a sign of success to lose territory within a growing business, which is just, just the opposite of what people are trained for. It's really interesting. I've never thought about it that way, but I've seen it in so many portfolio companies. You have early hires who are running marketing or running sales and as the company grows, you obviously bring in more people on each of those teams and responsibilities get divvied up and you go from head of marketing to head of paid acquisition or head of sales to you know, a specific region. And it's tough for the employees. One thing, if we have a second, that I'd love to share is just some of the hiring process. Do we have a second for that? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> like I mentioned, we spent a lot of time thinking about the types of uh, personalities that would thrive within the business. And it became very clear to us that the way we recruited, hired, onboarded, and then continuously trained was essential to that process. And if we hired the wrong people, it was almost impossible to train them. Uh, but if we hired the right people for the right reasons, 
it was actually very easy to train them and very easy for them to lean into the ongoing educational stuff that we did. And so recruiting and hiring is, is an incredibly time consuming process. And in the early days of a business, the, the thing you have the least of is time. And so it's an area that I see a lot of early stage businesses shortcut and it should be the last place you shortcut because once the product is proven and the product market fit is proven, all that matters from there is that you hire the right people. And the way that we went about it, um, I'd recommend reading the book, Who? It's WHO question mark, but it's a process for hiring. I think it's a great resource and a great starting place. And so we used that as kind of a foundational piece. And then we built around it in our own ways. And where we ended up was we ended up with a, uh, a resume screen and an initial phone screen that just made sure that basic job responsibility alignment was there. And then we had an interview that was much more in depth in person with someone on the team that this person would be working with to make sure that they could really do the job well. And then we would have the hiring manager interview the person to determine whether or not they'd be a good fit for the team and sort of double check the previous interviews conclusions about their ability to execute the day-to-day functions of the role. And then the last interview was either with Peter, our CEO or myself. And it was an hour long interview that was a hundred percent personal. So we'd open up the interview and say, this interview has almost nothing to do with your professional credentials. If you're in this interview, it means that the rest of the team agrees that you can do the job. So we've got that box checked. You don't need to worry about it. The entire purpose of this interview is to make sure that you're a good cultural fit here and that this environment is going to be supportive of you and make sure that it aligns with your goals and personality and just that you're going to thrive in this environment because we knew it's a pretty extreme environment. And the whole interview was about uncovering, is this person humble? Are they self-aware? Are they going to be a cultural asset for the business? Because we figured if that was true, no matter how the business changed, there would be a role for someone. And so this final interview we would ask them or we would open the door for them to share in some cases, deeply personal things. And the point of it was to see, is this person in touch with who they are, why they are the way they are and what they want. And if those things were true, then we felt pretty confident that they would work out. And once we put this process in place, our hit rate on hires was through the roof and our production for the company went way up because we were bringing the right people in the doors. And so our ways of working, our culture, all of that stuff got stronger and stronger as we hired. And it was, it was, I would say maybe the most, aside from the product market fit being what it was, It was probably the second most important thing in the company's history was that we figured out this process. And did you use that process for every single hire 
through acquisition? Yeah, every single hire, no matter what level. And then once they were hired, they went through two weeks of customer service. So in the early days when there were just five of us, when a phone would ring, one of the five of us would have to answer it. Or if an email came in, one of us would respond to the email. So we were customer service. And it was such a good foundation for the business because it was customer first and you learned the business from the customer's perspective. You understood how does the customer talk about the product? What does the customer not like about the product? What do they like about the product? And so no matter what level you were hired at, you spent two weeks in customer service. And it was both a process of learning the business the way that we learned the business from the customer standpoint, but it was also kind of a final check on cultural fit because the customer was such a central, was, was so central to the way we thought about the business that if you didn't have the humility to sit in customer service for two weeks, responding to customers, you know, there's angry customers, there's customers who don't like us, there's complaints, there's all kinds of stuff that comes in. And if you don't have the humility to, to do that for two weeks and do it well, then you're not going to fit in the business overall. And there are two examples of people who were let go less than a week after they started because their customer service performance was so poor. Wow. I love that. If that's not customer centric, I don't know what is. Yeah. So talking to, about the business now, you guys were able to scale from two to 120 plus million in revenue in a fairly short period of time. How, how did you guys finance everything? You did not raise any outside capital famously. How did you finance inventory, marketing spend, you know, operations in general? Yeah. Um, the first source of financing, which gets overlooked pretty often, is operating profit. <clears throat> so we sold the bars profitably. And it wasn't just that we were really frugal with our marketing and sales tactics. Our, the way we priced the product relative to the cost uh, gave us enough margin to finance the business, mostly. And so the only thing that we had to concern ourselves with was working capital fluctuations. And as you're growing that quickly, you know, you have to produce more bars. Each consecutive run gets bigger and bigger, which means the raw materials, um, the line time, all of that stuff costs more and more money. And so we financed that part of it with a traditional um, line of credit and um, we kept expanding that line of credit as the business grew and we, we continuously looked for new partners who were more aligned with our scale and our size of growth, who would, you know, expand our, our borrowing capacity. Um, but really it was a pretty simple, it's pretty simple. We priced the product profitably. Uh, we were frugal on everything below mar uh, gross margin. And then we had a line of credit facility to help us manage the, the cash flow cycles. And did you, you know, were you constantly in talk with your vendors and your suppliers about better terms? Like, was that <clears throat> an ongoing conversation or was it really just classic credit lines? 
Yeah. So, I mean, getting back to the constraints being a, a positive because we weren't funded through some outside source, we never had a big balance sheet. We never had a ton of cash. And so from day one, we were really sharp on our negotiating with vendors and not just the dollars, but the timing of the cash, the terms, every single facet of cost was something that we just had no choice but to be really sharp on from day one. Um, and we didn't, you know, we were, uh, we were mature business in the sense that if somebody didn't deliver, we didn't pay them. And I think in a lot of venture funded businesses, if you've got a few million bucks on the balance sheet and a PR firm just doesn't deliver at all on what they say they're going to deliver on, you just pay them because it's awkward to not pay them. And it's, and it's more uncomfortable to call them and say, Hey, you guys didn't really deliver on the product you said you would, so we're not paying you. So we had a, and we didn't do that often, but if we had to, and we felt like the money was wasted, we just wouldn't, you know, we were really focused on every single penny. So, um, up and down the line, we were thinking about costs. Yeah, in uh, in the venture world, I think you're completely correct. When companies have raised lots of money, you know they're not thinking so tightly around negotiating with vendors, uh, paying you know, potential PR folks or potential agencies, and it really is an afterthought. And I, I agree that the constraints around the business, in terms of limited or, or no outside capital, definitely helps with advantageous terms for the for the company. Yeah, and and those types of that type of culture, because we all did it in the early days. You know, this wasn't like we got to a certain size and said, okay, now that you're the head of procurement, you need to start negotiating. Like it was built into the fabric of the business that you did not waste money. And so it built muscles in us as executives and then also culturally throughout the business um, that paid dividends. And it seems like small dollars, you know, but when you when you build that type of thinking into the fabric of the business and the culture, it really does add up. And when you're trying to bootstrap a business, literally every penny counts. And so one of the things I always look at when I'm talking to an early stage company is when they price their product, <clears throat> are they pricing it at a round number? Like, is their wholesale price $1.50 or is it $1.48? And you can tell culturally if somebody's paying attention to the pennies based on the way they set their pricing architecture, because the math is easier, the communication's easier, and it kind of logically makes more sense to round to the nearest five or 10. But when you are selling $250 million worth of protein bars, the difference between 150 and 148 really matters. And that type of mentality was present throughout the business. And I don't even know how to quantify it, but I can just tell you that we couldn't have bootstrapped the business without that kind of mentality. And taking that mentality into the M&A process, in 2017, uh, you guys exited to Kellogg's for $600 million, which was reported. Do you think the bootstrap mentality helped with that process? 
whether it was from receiving the inbound or going outbound, having discussions, not having to deal with investors around the table? Um, or do you think it would have been the same had you been uh, a funded company by private equity or venture? Yeah, I think it it helped in the sense that we knew the business inside and out. You know, there was not because we built everything in house from the ground up and we never had somebody come in at some stage that, you know, dropped some process in that they had brought from another business. It was all built organically. So when we went through the sale process, the conversations with the strategics who they're an acquirer and they're a big business, but they're operators too. You know, they like us and unlike most investors, they just think about the nuts and bolts of the business as well. <clears throat> so they can tell a business that's built like a house of cards versus a business with a super strong foundation. And so I definitely think that mentality helped us when we're sitting across the table from the best in the world. You know, Kellogg is one of the best food operators in the world. And so when you're talking to their head of supply chain, you know, you're not, you can't, um, you can't pull the wool over their eyes. They know what they're talking about. And so I think it really helped in those conversations to show that we were pretty legitimate. There was stuff we didn't know. And there's a lot of expertise that they brought to the table that we, we didn't have internally and would have taken us decades to build. But, um, but those conversations were much more of like, I don't want to say peers because Kellogg operated a way bigger business than we did, but we could sort of see eye to eye in certain ways that we wouldn't have been able to if we hadn't built the business from the ground up. Cool. Well, it's, it's great to hear that. I appreciate you sharing your perspectives and getting in the weeds with us today and look forward to seeing uh, what your next venture is. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it.